Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. March 9th will mark the 10th anniversary of the market bottom. Uh, during the global financial crisis. On that day, the intraday low in the S&P 500 touched 666. Since then, the market is up over 300%. So to give us a sense of kind of what has been driving the market and what to look forward to going forward, uh, we welcome Charlie Bobrinskoy. Charlie is a vice chairman and head of, of the investment group at Ariel Investments with over uh, close to $14 billion under management. Uh, Ariel is based in Chicago, but Charlie joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Charlie, welcome uh, to our studios. Thanks for having me. What, looking back, what were some of the lessons that you guys at Ariel, you folks at Ariel, take from the financial crisis and then what's happened since over the last 10 years? Yeah, some of it's relearning old lessons. The biggest one is that you have to be greedy when others are fearful, and people were very fearful in 2009, and it was the best time to be a buyer, but boy, it didn't feel like it at the time. Uh, people felt great about stocks in 2001, and it was a terrible time to invest in stocks. So buy when others are selling, sell when others are buying, be greedy when others are fearful. Those are the re lessons we relearned. So, and right now, unfortunately, possibly for investors, invest, uh, for, for those who are seeking those values, retail investors don't seem either particularly greedy or particularly fearful. They just kind of are uh, following what's going on. And they're being almost, dare I say it, prudent. I'm just wondering from your perspective, is there alpha left? Is there a place for an active manager to really generate significant returns? So when we make presentations to investment committees and institutional investors, they're still pretty nervous. They keep asking questions about when is this going to end? Hasn't this rally gone on too long? We're going to have a recession here any day. There's been a shift to um, fixed income, LDI investing at pension plans. We think the institutional investor is still pretty nervous. Uh, the, a lot of questions we get about our earnings recession coming the first two quarters, we don't see it. So I'm going to just say that the market in general is still pretty nervous. So, Charlie, it's interesting because the market's up. The S&P is up over 11% this year. And one of the stats that you know, that really caught my eye is just that this, this round trip we've had since early December, that 37% move roughly in the S&P. So when you think about that, one could argue that, gee, maybe – Today, now, now's the time to sell. I kind of made 11%. Isn't that good enough? And what's your view for the remainder of this year, for example? Yeah, so our uh, the flagship fund of Ariel is the Ariel Fund, which is actually up 18% uh, when the S&P was up 11 on Tuesday. And, um, you know, I will say it was dirt cheap after the drop last quarter. At the beginning of the year, we were at 13 times forward earnings. We're not at dirt cheap anymore. We're probably close to fair value but there are still pockets of cheapness, and there's pockets of overvalued. Uh, we think there's still a safety bid. Uh, stable stocks are considered stable stocks. Utilities, high-paying um, consumer staples are still overpriced. What's not uh, expensive are anything that's considered cyclical. You still have a lot of people thinking a recession's coming, that global growth is going to slow down. So we love the alternative asset managers, KKR and Blackstone, which are considered uh, high beta and um, cyclical, and they're very cheap right now, as are a lot of industrials. So I'm looking right now at S&P 500 that's up more than 11% year to date, including reinvested dividends. How much further does it have to go? What's going to be the full year return for 2019? Yeah, so we think neither we nor anybody else can have a good prediction on that. Um, we can at any given time give you a view on relative value. 
Uh, but we don't think anybody's any good at, at predicting the short term. Uh, we think, of, frankly, the secret to investing is focusing on the long term and not spending too much time worrying about the short term. However, uh, at certain times... <laughs> However, uh, here is an exact number for the yeah, S&P no, 500 year end 2019. You will not get that. But it is actually <laughs> true that, that market multiples are a pretty good predictor of returns. And so when you had at the beginning of the year um, our value stocks at around 13 times, that was cheap. And low PEs do tend to produce uh, high returns, even in the short term. There's a great statistic that when the PE ratio drops by 20% in the market, it's often a very good period of time to invest for even the next 12 months. Does Ariel invest at all in IPOs? Uh, not usually. Okay. Um, and the reason is because we want to um, invest in companies that have a proven sustainable competitive advantage. Uh, we're value investors, so we look at earnings. A lot of the companies that are going to be coming public this year have no earnings. People are talking about multiples of sales. So we would be very cautious on some of the valuations that we're seeing for companies that are coming. Charlie, what do you feel about concentration? Because I've been hearing about more funds that are going into, say, 15 names, and that's it. Yeah. We're very concentrated. We believe in focus. Uh, we have in the aerial fund uh, 40 stocks. Buffett talks about why it's so much better to invest in your top 20 ideas rather than putting money into your 30th, be 30th best idea. We think it's if you're really diversified with 100 stocks, very hard to beat the indexes after fees. So we believe in focus. You can know those names better. Uh, frankly, there's stocks like KKR that are very cheap, and we'll put a lot of money into KKR, 5% of a position. When did you start that bet? Uh, in 2013, when the U.S. government downgraded, um, uh, when S&P downgraded the U.S. government from AAA, everybody thought the high-yield market was going to close, and KKR stock went from 18 to 12. And it became a wonderful opportunity because the 2 and 20 didn't go away. Um, but the stock got reduced in price by 33%. It's gone now from 12 to uh, 23. Uh, and then one of the reasons was it was a partnership that index funds can't buy. And KKR converted into a C-Corp, so now everybody can buy them. Vanguard just bought 8% of the company in the last quarter. Yeah, and I'm looking at the shares right now. KKR shares have risen more than 67% since uh, March 2013. Charlie Bobrinskoy, thank you so much for being with us, Vice Chair and Head of the Investment Group and Portfolio Manager at Ariel Investments, uh, which is in New York City to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis. Yeah, I'd rather celebrate what's come after the financial crisis than the, cr the crisis itself. It wasn't so long ago that things were starting to look up a little bit for General Electric. There was a sense that uh, there was going to be a restructuring, a path forward. Uh, what happened? GE, the shares having its their biggest two-day decline right now since November uh, in the red by more than 4% today. Karen Eubelhart of Bloomberg Intelligence joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Karen uh, covers industrials here. What's going on now? Uh, well, you know, we've had a lack of disclosure um, on 2019, so it has been anybody's guess. We've had no guidance for over nine months, and uh, we are long awaiting the 14th where they would give us 2019, and yesterday Culp gave a little preview of what they're going to announce next week and said that negative that cash flow, which was $4.8 positive this year, was going to be in the negative column next year, and it was a, a total surprise. So what's driving this 
negative surprising cash flow? Which of the remaining businesses? And I know I know they've sold off a lot of businesses. They've really focused. What's causing the problems now? Uh, good old power. But in addition to that, and th- this is one of the problems with GE. Last year, they apparently got uh, a billion plus in prepayments from their little renewable business, okay, which they didn't mention when cash flow was better than expected, right? This year, they have to start delivering that stuff. That business, that little tiny business is going to shift from a billion positive to probably, you know, I don't know, up to a billion negative. So that's two billion of the shortfall. Why didn't they tell us there was a one time last well, year? But this, know, this, like- this, but this raises another question, right? One sort of hallmark of General Electric's problems has been, I don't know if accounting uh, issues is sort of a strong way of putting it, but they, in inaccurate accounting statements or, or statements that have not fully disclosed the depth of the problems at the organization for a variety of reasons. Does this just sort of confirm that nothing on that front has dramatically changed and that these surprises will keep coming? Well, that that is part of it. People are hanging their hat on, you know, this is a, this is a, you know, an honest guy, a really good operator. He's gonna he's gonna, you know, give us, you know, the details. And uh, this was like dropping a bomb. And and but the second one is power. Power, you know, it's gonna it's taking him longer to get his arms around it. I don't have any doubt that he will. But power is going to be worse this year. And again, some of that could have been d- disclosed. They, these are very long-term contracts. They did very bad contracts over the last few years just to get orders on the books. And guess what? Now they've got to ship them. And they're shipping very probably some, some deals at, at losses. And that's going to be a multi-year uh, workout, you know, kind of like an engineering construction company that gets a bad contract and takes years to work through the backlog, right? Um, but then also, um, you know, the cost structure is not anywhere near in line with where revenues are today, and that's ongoing. He laid, they laid off 24,000 people in that division alone last year. They've cut a number of plants. It's not enough. So that's what he's telling us. They have to do more. Okay, so let's – now, they've, they've done a lot in terms of the, the M&A, the restructuring of the company. Do you think that they are done with that in terms of selling what I guess people would call non-core assets? Are the assets that GE has today, is that it? No, they still have about $14 billion in stock ownership of Baker Hughes. Uh, that, that business is already offline. It's, it's being run independently, but they have a $14 billion ownership there. They have about um, another $4 billion that they can get out of the Wabtec business that they sold. Um, and then it's going to be smaller units, I think, from here. But even in the power division, there's two pieces now. That the, the non-gas piece, there's stuff in there that they can sell. Um, but I think the big stuff is is probably behind us. So, all right. So, I, of course, I'm sorry. I am very focused on the debt side of this, just because that is the nature of my DNA. That is, Lisa. That is I'm sorry. <laughs> it is who I am. I'm looking right now. General Electric uh, perpetual bonds, five uh, percent debt is the biggest loser among the mm-hmm. investment grade universe today. Another decline in price that means higher implied borrowing costs. How crucial is it that General Electric gets its act together and is able to give better disclosure and, frankly, a better view into just how much more it can sell in the valuation? that it'll be able to achieve in order to avoid paying criminally high interest rates or or prohibitively high uh, interest rates and a potential downgrade? Well, I think they bought some time with that $20 billion asset sale that they announced last week. That will, will significantly help the debt burden. They're not gonna get the money until the fourth quarter of next year, but, uh, you know, there's a good shot that the credit agency, agencies will say, look, we got a, a lot of cash coming. And um, it's the, the deal with Danaher. Uh, and I think that really bought them time. The, the sales at selling something for $3 billion or $5 billion or $4 billion, there was still a lot of a worry. Um, and now this, they got a chunk of change coming, which will, I think, alleviate some of that, those fares. The one risk is, what if some of these 
what, these unknown liabilities are much bigger than we think, right? There's a lot of lawsuits out there. Um, you know, there's a number, there, there's a long-term health care insurance thing that, do they really have their arms around that? So I think they're okay with this big asset sale if nothing big hits them, you know, unexpectedly. But there's room for that. There's room for the unexpected here. All right, let's, you know? lastly, let's talk about the dividend. I'm looking on the Bloomberg terminal now. There's a 42 um a cent uh, dividend yielding about 3.88%. Is that safe? No, they, they cut the dividend um, to uh, a penny. Okay. Just because, so, so just a nominal trailing. dividend. Yeah, so, okay. so it's, um, they had, they, and they're saving $4 billion by doing that. Well, actually, it's an $8 billion annual cost that's now uh, not, like $800 million, I So this, this is not the GE we grew up with, building, growing, buying dividends for widows and orphans. No. That's, that, those days are gone, right? I, you know, he said down the road he wants to be two and a half times leverage and, and, and a co competitive dividend, but that's really quite a bit down the road. So. Karen Uberhart, thank you so much. Uh, Karen Uberhart, senior industrial analyst, been covering GE forever, not to age you. Uh, she's our, our best in Bloomberg Intelligence. So thanks so much. As usual, there is a lot of news in the healthcare space. First, we have the announcement that the FDA has approved uh, Johnson & Johnson nasal spray that works to, I guess, alleviate symptoms of depression. And we also have news that of the sudden resignation of the Food and Drug Administration's commissioner, Scott Gottlieb. So help us break down all that's going on in healthcare. We bring in our friend Max Neeson. Max is biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Max, uh, welcome once again. Uh, this Johnson & Johnson news, this story seems like a big deal, is it? It definitely is. So it's the first kind of real novel uh, depression medicine in, in more than a decade. And uh, it's the first one in, you know, in an even longer time that has kind of a, a genuinely different way of, of working on the brain. And then kind of the third differentiating factor is that it's, it's fast acting. Uh, what we have generally takes, you know, weeks to kick in. You have to build kind of a concentration up over time. So this has uh, the potential to be used in, in a lot of interesting different ways for, for people that are kind of in, you know, an acute moment of crisis or uh, who just don't respond to existing therapies. And that, that is a pretty big population. So you know what else is fast acting? Cocaine. Fentanyl. I mean, is, 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 this is ketamine. Is this potentially the next opioid crisis? So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a relative of ketamine and, and a close one. And I think the potential for abuse is something that the FDA definitely uh, considered, as opposed to, you know, whether it's the equivalent of just giving someone a party drug that they did run kind of, you know, randomized, you know, late stage trials in and control trials in really sick patients. And it did have an impact. Well, uh, flip it on its head, right? Have there been studies done of people who, let's say, uh, took ketamine or took other party drugs, took ecstasy, and that that actually helped with depression? You know, there, there have been a lot of attempts to, to study this, but not in kind of the, the scale and rigor of, of this trial. And, you know, beyond the fact that it, you know, has this kind of psychoactive effect that, that people have chased, uh, there does seem to be some kind of, you know, scientific evidence that there is an effect on the brain that, you know, there's there's like a, a medical thesis that they're chasing here for why it might help people with depression. It's not, let's give people a, a happy drug and, and see if they get happy. You know? So, Max, I know the antidepressant market in general is a monster market. Is there a sense of how big this sub part of it is? 
So that that's the big question. Uh, you know, treatment-resistant population is potentially millions of people. The question is how many of them are, are going to end up getting uh, getting Johnson & Johnson drugs. And that's that's a trickier question. This isn't, you know, you just get a, a pack of pills and take them. You have to go to a licensed office, uh, take it, and then sit there for two hours uh, while you're monitored for symptoms of dissociation and sedation. Then you're not supposed to operate heavy machinery for the rest of the day. So you got to find someone to give you a ride. So that that's a really hard thing for, for people that are, are working uh, to do. And then you know, this isn't something that your average psychiatrist is, is equipped to handle. So that that is likely to kind of keep it from reaching its full addressable market, at least anytime soon. And, and I, I just want to be very clear. I mean, I've sort of been talking about this with a light tone, but it's really not. And it frankly uh, underscores how much the epidemic of suicides in this country uh, has absolutely been exploding, especially among the younger populations. I do want to shift gears a little bit uh, to the Food and Drug Administration, uh, or just basically the, the, the chief of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, Scott Gottlieb, resigned suddenly. It seems like there was nothing untoward in why he resigned. There was no kind of push. It was a personal issue. How big of a loss is this, and how much does it affect the industries? Yeah, I think it's pretty significant. Um, everyone likes Scott. He, he, you know, there's obviously even you, even even me. Um, you know, obviously there's some people that really like, you know, selling tobacco and and vape pens. Less fans because he, he took kind of a an aggressive regulatory stance on them, but he was seen as someone that that understood the industry, uh, worked really hard, and and pushed on a lot of significant public health issues in a way that you hadn't really seen from uh, previous commissioners. It can be a quiet job, you know, it's a a technical administrative post, but uh, he turned into something that was a lot more communicative and and active uh, on the policy front. Uh, so I, I think he, he will be missed, and, and not just by, by drug makers who saw him as someone that was really pushing to modernize the agency and, and make it easier for innovative therapies to make it to market. But, but for, for the country as a whole, you know, uh, it, it's really the exception when you have kind of a relatively drama-free and, and competent um, leader of an agency uh, in, in this day and age of rel- relative to the past. So is there any sense of who's going to replace uh, Gottlieb? And, 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 and just in general, does, does, does the big pharma and all their lobbyists, do they have an influence on who gets selected? Um, you know, I, I imagine we're, we're not going to get someone that they really hate just because that is a big lobby and, and it's one that has a lot of influence in Congress. But but there is a chance that we could get a left field candidate. And I'm just thinking of, you know, the people that were rumored to be considered alongside Scott Gottlieb. Uh, one of them was kind of a Peter Thiel affiliated investor who um, has some some pretty um, out of the mainstream, I'll, I'll say, views on, on regulation of medicines, which is to say that they they shouldn't be regulated very much. Uh, that that's um, a position that you might think that drug makers are in favor of, but actually uh, would would potentially be pretty chaotic. So that that's a potential negative. Um, but we could just get you know a, a pretty mainstream uh, bureaucrat as well. Uh, it won't be as exciting as Gottlieb, but probably won't cause any harm. So we'll see. You know, you started off talking about this with respect that tobacco companies and and, and vaping uh, companies were not that excited about him being there and are, are more excited about him leaving. We did see a pop in their shares. Do you expect that to last or do you think that any successor uh, would would adopt the same kinds of policies? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be too surprised if they at least continue Gottlieb's efforts. Maybe they won't be as kind of publicly energetic about them. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think there's much of a, 
a push that these these companies can make to to kind of combat the general rise of of kind of further regulations and restrictions on the the, the public health impact is is pretty obvious. You, you don't want people getting addicted to to tobacco or, or nicotine products one way or another, and uh, it's the role of the FDA in one way or another to to take a role in that. So, so how is the FDA today? Is it generally perceived as a good bipartisan view, or is it really in the, in the lap of big pharma or on consumers? Where does the FDA kind of proceed right now? Uh, you know, I think the Gottlieb FDA at least was was kind of respected to a certain extent by by people on both sides of the aisle, which is an achievement in itself. I think you'll find people that, that do feel that it, it tends to lean too much in the way of, of pharma. And, and that was a criticism of Gottlieb, who, who had some industry experience. But at the same time, he did things uh, that were kind of to the detriment of industry, calling people out for kind of abuses of uh, the generic approval system, um, for pricing, things like that. And... Um, but on the other hand, you have people that want to push for the FDA to have more of an active role, so we'll see. Max Neeson, thank you so much for being with us. Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. We always value your perspective. Good morning. Well, it as Lisa said earlier, the market seems to be discounting that the Fed is done raising rates, at least for the near term. But there is an interesting column out this morning by former New York Fed President Bill Dudley that said, don't assume that there may be room for the Fed to perhaps even raise rates at some point later this year. Help us dig into this issue and outlooks for rates for 2019. We bring in Carl Riccadonna. Carl is the chief U.S. Econ- economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us live barely in the Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York. You're going to take that sitting down? <laughs> <laughs> Very much alive. Just He's uh, one floor away, and he made it with a second to spare. Thanks, Carl. So what do you make, Carl, of... Uh, Bill Dudley's column about rates and, and the outlook for 2019. I agree with what uh, the former New York Fed president is uh, saying, and we've uh, maintained that view uh, as well. Uh, this is a pause, not a peak for interest rates. We can look at the you know the the grand scope of uh, history, and the economy has never rolled over with interest rates as accommodative as they are at the moment. And so we look at real GDP growth relative to real interest rates, and real interest rates are essentially at zero. They have to rise significantly higher, maybe 200 basis points higher, to actually be depressing economic growth. All right, so let's dig a little bit more into exactly what uh, Bill Dudley said. He said that probably uh, the economy would underperform for the first half of this year. He thinks that uh, patience indicates the Fed won't be raising rates in the first half of 2019. However, he expects the economy to reaccelerate in the second half and basically prompt the Fed to uh, rethink its patience. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. And uh, here's the story. So break it down for us, Carl. The economy grew about, break it down. Uh, The economy grew about 3% uh, last year. That's well above trend growth. And when you grow above trend, two things happen. One, the unemployment rate moves lower. And two, you generate inflation pressure. So you get an acceleration in inflation. We saw both of those things last year. Uh, The economy is moderating this year. So we're going from 2.9 or 3% growth down to my team's expecting something close to 2.4%, still above trend. So you get exactly what you got last year, just in a slightly smaller dose. And so the, the expectation is 
Right, the earnings season's not looking that great. If you talk to uh, our uh, chief equity strategist, Gina Martin-Adams, uh, she'll say that uh, we may even be potentially contending with an earnings recession, not an economic recession, but an earnings recession, or at the very least a soft patch, uh, in the first part of this year. And so we have this uh, you know, equity market correction in Q4, a soft patch for corporate earnings, uh, residual seasonality issues with the GDP numbers where we get a, a soft print in uh, Q1, once we get to mid-year uh, and central bankers sit back and assess what's happening in the economy, they're going to see that we still have growth that is above trend. We have an unemployment rate heading into mid-3% territory. They're going to figure out that things look pretty good. And wage pressure is running at the so hottest of the cycle. How, and they'll say, in that environment, we're not done. We have to keep hiking. How surprised will markets be if, when the Fed, if the Fed hikes again this year? Well, the Fed doesn't want them to be surprised. So while the Fed kind of led the market to this point in terms of the rate increases we've seen, uh, the Fed got burned in Q4. Uh, this means now the Fed is going to follow, not lead the market to interest rates. So the Fed's going to let the market beg for it uh, and then be happy to oblige them. And by letting the market beg for it, uh, it means that we'll see a steepening of the yield curve. The Fed lets the market uh, price in more inflation expectations. You see a bare steepening of the yield curve. Uh, and then the Fed steps in and says, We'll help you address the inflation problem and layer some rate hikes in. Give us a sense of timing here. Is this a, a third quarter type environment? Uh, because I think if you look at them, I think the market's discounting really nothing for 2019. Right. The market is saying nothing. Economists are saying there's still hikes coming. I like the market better than economists, the, but go ahead. That's, that's you, Paul. <laughs> They're going to beg for it. That's what he's saying. They're going to beg like for that. those rate hikes. Yep. Go on. Yeah. So the way the timing of this works out, right, we have to wait until we have a, a sense that we're in the clear from this earnings recession, which means uh, probably by the time we get the Q2 GDP numbers, which would be the end of July, uh, that would be the time where you'll start to see both market participants and Fed policymakers say, okay, the economy's still running a little hot, uh, a little bit of additional accommodation is uh, warranted. And so I think we see two hikes in the back half of the year, probably at the September meeting and the December meeting. Uh, the December is a, a bolder call, and so you know the risk is not symmetric around that. The risk is we would only get one hike this year, uh, but we do have the view that uh, you know we're going to be contending with a, a still robust economic environment, and the Fed's going to have to do more. They'll just speak really fast to the meeting to indicate that they're not patient any longer. I just have <laughs> to ask like you. Yeah, <laughs> I just have to ask you, uh, really, in thirty seconds, uh, how much of the slowdown that we're seeing in the first half is due to this trade skirmish uh, that's been going on? That's an interesting question. I think You've there's got 30 seconds. some element to that. I think it's just a confluence of factors. I think we're we're blaming trade too much. Uh, and uh, we'll realize that domestic economic fundamentals are still very strong. And I keep going back to that unemployment rate, generating wage pressures. That is a backstop to consumer spending. And the domestic economic outlook is still very robust. Carl Riccadonna, telling it like it is here in the yes. Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, talking about that Bill Dudley column. Really interesting to me, uh, the idea that the market right now has completely written off rate hikes. And yet we have uh, former Fed officials coming out and saying, you guys are being a little premature. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.